they're like, no one's done what you guys have done. You're right. It's different. And so it's not that I want to be the only one, but I think that sometimes we have to remind the people we love that it's okay if your journey is not like anyone else's. It's about like your wonder. And that's something I constantly follow my wonder. Hard work, work. Hard work. That's what they say. Hard work, work. Hard work. I earn my pay. Hard work, work. Hard work. Do it every day. Welcome once again to another work ethic podcast. And I am really excited about today's conversation. So I'm sitting down with uh, my fairly new friend, um, Liz Peralta, who is actually a uh, fellow befriend sorcerer. Um, for those of you that know what that is, um, that's actually how we were connected. You know, the last episode we were on with Sakari, who was also one of our kind of little sorcerer circle crew. And I'm just excited that I got to got to schedule a couple times here back to back, even with a few of these um, other other uh, scholars in the crew. So so Liz is a, a co-founder and a vice president of impact with um, Feed Forward. And I guess historically was an executive director of Na- the National Supermarket Association, which I'm I'm really excited to hear more about mm-hmm. as well. Um, but rather than running through like a, just a, a list of LinkedIn stuff, I want to just toss you the, the ball to Liz, introduce yourself to everybody. And yeah. then we'll just kind of wrap from there. Yeah, I mean, I... In this like tech world, everyone kind of has gotten so used to like, hey, I'm on Zoom, I'm going to give my intro. And I like to do things a little different. I always say I start with my food story because that will help you understand why I did what I did. And so um, it starts off just like, you know, I grew up in a small suburb of New York called Porchester, New York. My mom was a single mom. And not only that, she was undocumented until I was about 16. And I didn't know that until I was much older. And it was kind of like piecing together this, like, how come we had sandwiches for dinner some night, even though we were like, we would go to bed super hungry and my mom would play these games with us so that we didn't notice that we were food insecure Mm. or that we didn't have money to pay rent. And so even though I didn't know we were food insecure, I knew something was up. So as a child, I was sort of like served as the lawyer, like filling out documents, talking to people, making phone calls. And uh, as I got older, it just really instilled in me that my mom could have chose, like, chose to abort, like have an abortion or whatever it is, but she chose to have children and stick by us no matter what. And I, my whole life, I was like, man, I want to give my mom the world. I want her to know that she belongs at the dinner table. Um, and another thing happened when I was younger was that, you know, she came home, I think it was eighth grade. Uh, crying and she's like this guy at the parking lot every time I go to the supermarket he's there and he's calling me the n-word and she's like I don't get it what did I do and I remember thinking like yeah what did she do she just is a person she doesn't deserve that and so I just kind of like fell in love with learning about where I came from so that I could educate people and so that led me to being a historian in college and that's a funny story in itself I started as a law major and then a nun was like no, you should not be a pre-law major, study history, it's going to teach you a lot more, and from that, I fell in love, and um, I've always been, like, a kid that's, like, I have goals, and people laugh, or, like, yeah, okay, you're going to do it, and so my first goal entering college was, I am going to work at the African American Museum that hasn't been open yet, it's still being built, I remember my professor laughed at me, he was, like, yeah, I've been trying to work at the Smithsonian forever, well, I actually ended up working at the Smithsonian, 
as I graduated, so I went from studying history, being student government president, fellowships and, and learning history to working at the Smithsonian, which I thought was my dream job. Mm. And once I was there and I was, you know, opening day happened. And I just remember thinking, this is so fucking awesome, but this, this is not for my people. It's not for my community. Like it's great, but I want to do this back in New York. And so very long story short, ended up coming back to New York, working at a bunch of museums where I met my now husband. And then I ended up working at a Catholic school um, doing marketing and advertising. And I fell in love with that because it was almost like high school all over again, except for I was an adult and I could recognize students walking down the hallway and being like, oh, you're in a bad mood today, but it's not because school sucks. It's because home sucks. You're hungry. You need something else. And so like, I felt so in love. I fell so in love with this community because I had a great boss but I also was in an environment where I could help kids without putting them on the spot. Um, and unfortunately, my, my principal passed away. And I don't know if anyone knows anything about school leadership, but once a principal changes, usually so does the whole vibe of the school. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I was like, you know what, instead of staying here where I know I'm not really wanted because I was all about like technology and new innovation and the new principal was like, tech is cool, but like, let's keep things old school. Um, I had been doing a lot of consulting work for politicians and quick shout out to my mentor, Diana Reyna, who was like the first ever Dominican woman to be a city council member in the state of New York. Um, she reached out to me. She's like, Liz, I think you should take on this role at National Supermarket Association. It's a really good next move for you. And I was like 25 at the time. So I was like, I'm going to interview because my my family, everyone has always told me it's good to interview even if you don't get it. But I had no intention of actually getting this executive director title. Now, the niche here was that growing up, my family came to this country and they're all coffee farmers from the Dominican Republic. But what they did was that they pulled, they sold all their farms before coming here and they pulled all their money and started a bodega. And then that bodega started another bodega. And then the five bodegas were then turned into a supermarket. And so my family knows a lot about restaurants and supermarkets. And so when I went to pitch the NSA, there was like a lawyer who was also interviewing. There was another grocer. But I think that what made me unique was that I pitched innovation and tech. Mm. And so, uh, and the other thing is like, you know, when you deal with people who are older, they don't want you to tell them your system is outdated and it sucks. And I never said that. I said, you're so smart. I want to create a technology for you that helps you work smarter, not harder, and at the same time, make a lot of money. And so I did that. It was the hardest, but most child, like beautiful experience of my life. Um, when I started, they were in a major deficit. I won't tell you how much, but like in two months, I took them out of it. And then I started planning paths forward, creating pipelines, and then boom, the pandemic hit. And so for me, the first, like without going super into everything, but more or less with NSA, which is the National Supermarket Association, which represents independent grocers on the East Coast. So that think about mom and pop supermarket owners. That's who I represented. So they're like Sea Towns, Key Foods, Super Fresh, these stores that most people shop at more often but the thing is that their market value is less because amazon has way more buying power mm. and so i worked there 
I helped them through the pandemic. I shifted their operations. So instead of doing events to raise awareness for grocers, we use our money to help people who are food insecure. And the reason this happened was actually really selfish because I was reading a lot of articles and I saw that if you were undocumented or, and this is what struck a chord is if you were married to someone who was undocumented, you did, you were disqualified from getting a stimulus check or PE, like any pandemic assistance. And that broke my heart because in a city where I come from New York, it's built off of immigrants, which means that like a majority of these families have nowhere to go. And like, for me, it was the school PS19Q, which is like the third biggest school in the United States. They called me and they said, look, we went to go give food to these families. And when we knocked on the door, we realized that there's like 10 families living in one apartment building mm -hmm. and they don't have any resources. And I just thought like, this is, this would have been me. Like if I was a kid and my mom was alive, I was, the, my mom was undocumented. What would have happened to me? And so like, it just really forced me to change. And that's what I did. And then after that, I ended up, um, and very, very transparently, I love NSA, love the grocers, but they wanted to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I could help them with that. But my, my personal mission is to empower folks that are from disenfranchised communities so that they don't have to just be surviving, but everything in life is about thriving. And so I decided to go uh, into food insecurity in the nonprofit world because at you know NSA, I was able to be at the White House and speak to elected officials. But one thing I constantly heard was that there were these men and women talking about food policy and government and EBT snapped, and my simple question once was, have you ever, have any of you ever been on EBT snap? Mm -hmm. And they said, no. So for me, that day was like very, very clear. I needed to shift my path and my worth ethic because I have been through food insecurity, been on food stamps. And at the same time, I've sat at boardroom tables with like the biggest corporate everything ever. And so, yeah, like that's about me. And I always start with my food story because museums, history, like all this stuff is random, unless you know that I started from this point of needing to learn everything possible because my mom didn't have opportunity to do so. So that's a little bit about me. A little bit about you. And uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot, uh, there's, a, there's so much in that story. Um, I will say that the thing that stood out to me the most, and this is like a weird thing to jump out, uh, probably not to many listening, a huge detail in your story, but a nun told you not to be in law school? Go back to that. Who's this nun? Yeah, so um, she's so cool. And actually I love, so there's the Sisters of St. Joseph, which funny, there's like a connection anyway, because yeah. that marketing job at the school ended up being with the Sisters of St. Joseph. And so I don't want to say the sister's name, but she had a pretty crazy rep for being straight up and blunt. And love she it. just pulled me aside from like, it was like a intro to pre-law class. And she was like, after the class, like, I, you know, I was a nerd. I like raised my hand. I was like, oh, I know this. She tells me after, she's like, can you stay after really quick? So she's like, what do you want to do? And I said, I think I want to be a lawyer. Um, I, I want to fight for people. And she was like, okay, well, just so you know, you can be a lawyer and study history. You can be a lawyer and study biology. But she was like, don't study pre-law because you know how to read a newspaper. It's very clear. You know how to look up on the internet. She's like, study something that's going to teach you about how people react and behave. And that's why I chose history. And like, I will forever thank that nun 
because it changed the whole trajectory. I think that if I would have stayed in law, like the law school path, I would have been one miserable lawyer. Um, or I would have been like one of these lawyers who like do a lot of pro bono work and then run for assembly. But then what most people say is like, you don't have a lot of political experience. And so for in this way, I was able to do everything at the same time. And so I kind of like, some people are like, you're kind of like a unicorn in the policy space. And I'm proud of that. And I think that studying law wouldn't have given, afforded me that opportunity. You know, I, um, I early on, uh, so had these convictions around justice and the poor and like looking at like the way that the systems work and was like, really thought, and there were two ways. So policy never appealed to me as much because I don't think I believe in the systems as much, mm -hmm. but like fighting uh, on behalf of people, kind of the lawyer seemed very compelling, like this image of like <clears throat> fighting for justice or something like that. And, and I like arguing and I'm, you know what I mean? I'm like, and actually just as like a, as like a thought, you know, like, you know, LSAT does like these like puzzle tests and like there's yeah. certain analytical kind of minds where I'm like, yeah, I'd be a great lawyer. You'd be a great lawyer. Um, well, a buddy of mine that was similar, we were talking about law school and it's funny. He, um, he said, uh, he's like, Hey, let's, I, I found some research. I want to show you. I've been looking at this. Um, and just thinking about, should we do law school? And, and if we do how, whatever and this like stuck with me forever, but, um, it's interesting. Like this wasn't exactly what she said to you, but it feels related, although it's on the more of an economic side. Mm -hmm. He's like, man, you know, I did a bunch of research and I pulled all these numbers on the number of, uh, law students, stu law graduate students, like that have finished law degree holders, whatever that are defaulting on their student loans. And it's like 85, 90% of them don't have employment or the means to pay off their student debt because they're working yeah. at Starbucks or grocery stores, because actually there's not. And, and so what I realized was eat. So what that meant was there was desperation in the workforce on, on these law degrees, meaning the very thing that I want to like fight will be the thing that I work for. So like the only way through this and actually to pay your bills off is to go work for a state's attorney or a public defender mm -hmm. and to actually work for the government, which is the very thing I wanted to go scrap with. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, and so for me, I was like, okay, this isn't, this isn't an option. Um, and, and it was weird. It was like this one conversation that said, let's not bark up this tree. Yeah. Um, and, and it was for different reason, but like, it's interesting hearing now, how did you know the sisters of St. Joseph, is it because the, uh, the job that put you in that space, like, or how yeah, is this sure. none in your life? Are you, are you yeah, part actually. of a Catholic church and you're, you're yeah. being brought up by nuns? Like, yeah, just put us yeah. in the place where we're like, we have nuns speaking into our lives all of a sudden. I don't think a lot of <laughs> folks listening maybe have that in their life, yeah. uh, these days, especially. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, like, so one, I will say that it's kind of a, everything that I will tell you is kind of a crazy story but um I am part of a Catholic group it's always been my center I think it's mm -hmm. really important but actually what happened was that I was a pretty smart kid in high school but I slacked off because I was like grades are stupid I don't want like a standardized test to tell me who I am yep. and then you know sophomore year I was like holy crap I need to buck up because I don't want to be home I want to <laughs> get away I want to because like I'm you know one of five eight, including my half siblings. 
And so I always had to be like a parent to my siblings. Mm. And so I applied to Catholic University of America because I had gotten a good scholarship there. And then at the last minute, they told me that my loan didn't go through because my older brother went to college and then dropped out and didn't tell my parents. So they had to started defaulting and then hiding bills because he was he didn't want to tell them. And so they were defaulting on his student loan payments because you know how it gets like, as soon as you drop out, you got to make quick payments. So when it was up to my turn, they were like, we can't give you a loan. And so um, my friends were like, you should apply to this school. It's called St. Francis College in Brooklyn Heights. Their slogan is like small college of big dreams. <laughs> and I remember I, I did not want to go here. I was like, yo, I'm so like too smart. I was a little cocky and I was like a stupid freshman. I was like, oh, this is, I'm better than these people to the point that I walked in the day before classes started. And I was like, here's my transcript. Here's like everything you need. And I was hoping that they were going to say, it's too late to apply for school so you can join next year. And then on the spot, they're like, you're great. We're going to give you a full scholarship. And in wow. my mind, I was like, damn it. Now I have to go to the school. Mm-hmm. And that's so in that school, there are brothers and nuns who teach classes. There's obviously lay, lay people as well, but they were just like super real. And, you know, another person that I always talk about is brother Greg. He, he mm-hmm. you know, I was a miserable person at St. Francis for the first nine months and come to school, smoke a cigarette, go to class, go to work. And he called me out. He was like, hey, I see you come every day. You do the same stuff. You're a good student. The only reason this experience stinks is because you don't want it to be better. Mm-hmm. Now you go into that school and you give it a real shot. And if you hate it, then transfer. But I'm telling you, you're going to find something that you love. And he was right. So, you know, I really, again, I feel like God always sends me some random people, whether you believe in God or not, it's yep. like another but like, I always feel like on every path, I've been giving people to follow and kind of guide me in the right direction. And I love it. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm glad. I'm so glad the nuns stood out to me. That was a, that was a nice uh, uh, kind of journey back. And actually, I think that's a really interesting lesson um, because I think we all can probably share in that experience where you like look back over your story and there's these pivotal conversations, um, whether it's like my buddy with some data or brother Greg with a, like a word, a challenge to be like, yo, tighten up. And there's these pivotal moments that, uh, if we're open, if we're listening, um, that it seems as if something, uh, calls us. Uh, so let me ask you that because calling is one way that people talk about, especially in groups like, uh, you know, sisters of St. Joseph and, Uh, the brother gray, the Franciscan yeah. brothers of the world. Like there is like this calling into um, kind of a vocation of ministry or m- monastic life. Uh, but, you know, vocationally like vote, you know, our, our vocation means calling like vote yeah. that comes from like the, well, the la- I don't know Latin very well, but uh, like vocal is the same, yeah. right? Like, so we get to, calling vocation employment so as you look back over your life because you were like historian so like law history supermarket and then you know we'll kind of get into what you're doing today as well maybe this is a way to get there um do you have um talk to talk to me about a set like that sense of vocation calling whatever and like over your story is there some like clear thread that seems like very clear to you that is like i was built for I am intended to kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, funny story is I 
always had a huge sense of like my purpose in life was to help change the world. And like, I know that a lot of kids are like, oh, I want to be president. I want to do this. But even as a little kid, my mom would be like, you're going to do it. I know it. Like she, like my mom would tell me, she told me once that we were a family on food stamps and you could do like Medicaid or Medicare, but she purposely kept me off of the Medicaid so that if I ever became president, it would not be on my record. And I was like, why are you thinking like that? And she was just like, cause you're going to be the one. And so, yeah, like, uh, I think that I always felt like I wanted to do something, especially because I had a mom who fought so hard to do so much good. And then, you know, this is not something I always like talk about a lot, but as a, I am a survivor of like, a, like of rape and that had a huge influence on me because I was like, am I tainted? Am I like unlovable? Why did this happen to me? And I feel like everything I've done has been a journey to one, understanding my blackness, right? What that means in being in America, being an Afro-Latina, and in following and trying to learn my history, I found this path of like, I'm so fascinated um, of telling other people their misconceptions, but not yelling at them, but like coming together, breaking bread and being like, hey, if you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat, I believe in some of the things that you believe in. And sometimes I dis disagree, but like, I just want to come together so that we can talk and I can try to understand where you're at. And so for me, it was always about understanding systems and why they were flawed and trying to go to the center of that flawedness. And so I think part of understanding systems is understanding the historical like history behind these systems that are created. Um, so like, I love the Roaring Twenties. I love learning about the history of America because I'm like, oh my God, that is how this happened. And McDonald's and like business and all of this stuff is just history constantly repeating itself and, and morphing into modern times. So for me, when people, you know, I've gotten so many people saying like, oh, museums and food, that seems like a jump. And I'm always the one that's like, no, they go hand in hand because you can't tell the history of this world without looking at the history of food and how it's moved and, you know, how communities have been disenfranchised by supermarkets that were taken away from them. So a community that was okay, but then supermarket closed became like a food desert. It goes hand in hand. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like that, the calling, I, I, as a child, I was kind of always chasing it, you know, trying to understand. And it was hard. It like, I think it made me feel depressed a lot as a middle school kid and a, and a high school kid because I felt like I didn't fit in anywhere. I felt like everyone was like, I want to be a doctor. I'm good at baseball. I'm this. And I was always good at a lot of things, but I wasn't like the first, the best of the, it, but I wanted to learn a lot. And so um, it's been hard because the calling took, I think I turned 29 a couple of weeks ago and it was like on my 29th birthday that I was like, wow, I was depressed for such a long time, but it's because I kept trying to shape myself according to what society told me I should mm. be. But like what I am today is nothing that's ever been or ever existed. In fact, in my current company, Feed Forward, when we pitched to venture capitalists, they're like, no one's done what you guys have done. You're right. It's different. And so it's not that I want to be the only one. But I think that sometimes we have to remind the people we love that it's okay if your journey is not like anyone else's. It's about like your wonder.
And that's something I constantly follow in my wonder. That's such a good um, piece of like, like wisdom. Um, just that idea to be like, to be led by your wonder and that you're not, I mean, this is so good. Uh, hopefully that just resonates with everyone. And I want to, I want to ask you about like this kind of Oregon work that you're doing today, but I want to kind of geek out on something else first. Um, sure. So you, you talked about like, Oh, people say museums and food, like they don't go together and you kind of go, well, if you don't understand like food, you can't tell the history of the world without food. And it's really interesting to me listening to you. Um, I think I'm similarly uh, scattered in interest led by wonder, very open, interested, kind of really fascinated with the past, but mo mostly because I'm fascinated with the future and like, it's about trajectory and what's yeah. come and where we're going and these rhythms and patterns. And like, and I, interestingly enough, go, I think food is a central piece of everything how we yeah. understand poverty, society, cities, and, and even like the growth of development of cities, nations, like from the, from the beginning, from villages, whatever, or even just from not being nomadic is food, right? It's agricultural revolution, whatever. Um, and, and so, as you said that my mind exploded with my own, like years of just like puzzling over food and even some of the Catholic piece of that, like you being like, Oh, part of this Catholic thing or went to Catholic school, whatever. Um, I have a similar background um, and, and, you know, even the stories of scriptures, um, the Judeo-Christian scriptures, like I think food is this central player in mythology, right? Like yeah. there's this forbidden food, there's this breaking of bread, there's this, um, this is my body broken and it's in yeah. food that is shared. Um, so I wanted to like ask you to just go back to that, like that. Sure. So, and go, let's give it space. I actually, just for my, like, I'm like, this is a huge area of interest. And I would like to hear you dig into that kind of like, like just let it out. Some of this like love of food and history. And like, you go, oh, you can't know history of the world without walking through the food and culture, but like say more. Um, I, I wanted yeah. to like circle back and go, let's spend some time on that. Yeah, I mean, like the first thing that comes to mind is not, a history you would know it's my personal history but like food we didn't have a lot of money growing up but there was never like for birthdays if it wasn't a birthday cake it was like a feast you know like I remember my mom she would always say like I can't get you a gift for your friend's birthday party but if you invite your friend and their family over for dinner they're gonna have a meal that they're never gonna forget mm. and like that always sticks with me because like a good example is um my best friend one of my best friends her name is Christina they were flying to Minnesota to visit a friend and their flight back was uh at an airport in Westchester that they had never heard of and I'm from Westchester County New York so I was like hey I can come pick you up with my mom and my mom goes she picks them up or uh, and with her on the way back she had like rice beans beef and like we sit down and my friend takes a bite. She's like, oh my God, what is this? Like, this is amazing. And my mom looks at her and she's like, you mean rice or beans with potatoes in it? Like it's normal, but like this, cause then my friend was like, that's just beans and potatoes in a stew. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, where did this originate from? And I said, well, my family, we're from the Dominican Republic which means that we're Taino 
Native Americans there. And a lot of the culture was blended in with Spaniards who came in, right? Or Europeans who came in and sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, infiltrated our territory, right? And so you have some slaves coming up and slave people coming up from Africa, from other parts that are bringing in. And so it's like clear, it's like, yeah, this tastes like something you know, because it was taken and, you know, brought across the world, but the origins, the roots, everything, it comes from, you know, our motherland, which is not the Dominican Republic, it's actually Africa. And so like things you like, like yucca or plantains, these are things that like are borrowed and brought to cultivate new traditions and new love. And even then, like I use food to talk about racism in my family because, you know, I love my mother to death, but she was definitely one of those people's I would say like, I'm Dominican, I'm not black. And one of the reasons that I studied history was because I wanted her to know that we are black mm -hmm. and Dominican. And the reason that that guy in the parking lot called her the N word was because of a history of racism. It was easier for her to digest it when I talked about it in food. Because when I talk about, you know, 19 something, this and that, it's really hard because you put people in a like, oh, you must be educated to understand that, but you don't need to be educated to eat food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you just eat it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was always thinking about, because I also grew up with a mom who was, you know, very defensive. She had a fifth grade education. That was a max. She That's all she went up to fifth grade. So I constantly had to think of ways to tell my mom about the things that brought me into so much wonder without making her feel defensive. Like, I can't, grasp this and there, and a, a perfect example is like I told my mom you know for years that I was pre-law and she was like I'm so proud of my daughter she's going gonna be a lawyer and you know before she passed away we didn't know she was gonna pass away I was like my professor was like you gotta tell your mom that next year when you graduate you're gonna have a history degree <laughs> not like a political science degree and I took her to a museum and I like walked her through everything and I remember at the end, she sat down and she started crying. And I just thought, fuck, I will never bring you to a museum again, mom. I'm sorry. And she just said, no, I'm so grateful. because. And if you want to do this for the rest of your life, then do it. Because you taught me that places like museums are supposed to be for poor people so that we can learn alongside our children. But I was like under the belief that it was for rich people who had money to do all this stuff. And that's not what museums are for. Even the Smithsonian was born so that it could give access to other people to learn about their history. Yeah. And so food and history go hand in hand, especially when you're dealing with people that might not have a college degree or even a high school degree. You gotta make it digestible for them so that it's a part of their life. It's a part of their history and their story. And so, yeah, that's, I love history because it helps me any conversation I have. I like listen to someone and I'm like, oh, you're talking about Pokemon. Let me talk to you about like the first ever video game and how that transformed. And then like, let's talk about Web3. So, <laughs> you know, so like, I just try to find ways to break bread in a way yeah. that makes everyone comfortable. That's so good. That's so good. So how does this love of history um, and this love of food um, culminate in the work that you do today and then tell everybody about before in your organization and like where you're at today, what you're working on, what you've got, what y'all have built um, yep. and how, how that came to be fulfilled in this. Yeah. I mean, um, so my mom passed away in 2013 from a brain aneurysm and 
damn, I might get a little emotional because like, you know, my birthday, every time I have a birthday, I always have this moment like there's so many, like we're getting to a point where there's going to be a time where my mom has been dead more than I was like alive with her. Mm-hmm. So like when my mom passed away, she had a brain aneurysm and, you know, we called 911. I was in college, like about an hour away. My little sister at the time, I believe she was like nine. She called 911 and the ambulance came, but they thought that my mom was on drugs. So instead of taking her straight to the hospital, they had her sit in the ambulance and checked our house for an hour for drugs. And if you know anything about brain aneurysms, you need to get the patient to the hospital as soon as possible so they can drain the blood clot. And then the worst part was that you know, I was trying to get there as fast as I could. I got a friend to drive me to from Brooklyn all the way to Connecticut. And because the closest, there's no hospital in our hometown because they had to close it down. So it's another thing I've had to endure. And so when she gets to the hospital, they forget to check her in and she's sitting outside for another 45 minutes. And so, you know, I get a call in the middle of a philosophy final at St. Francis. And they're like, can you come to the hospital? We really need to talk to you. And long story short, I was like, no, I don't have time. Like, you need to tell me right now I'm coming to the hospital, but I don't want to wait two hours to hear what's going on. And they were like, you know, your mom's not going to make it. She had a brain aneurysm and you, who are 19 years old at the time, are the power of attorney. So you need to come and make this decision. So like, I always had this chip on my shoulder. Like, I wanted my mom to know that everything she did was for a greater good. And uh, when she died, I remember thinking, like, I have two options. I can be miserable for the rest of my life because I never got to give my mom the things I promised her, a house, a car, vacations, but, like, just love that she never got as a child. Um, Or I can try to do this for other moms and other families that they don't have to endure. Like, it's actually pretty fucked up that kids have to live, you know, their whole lives saying, like, mom, one day I'm going to get you. There's, the mm-hmm. system should be built so that everybody has what they need and nobody's suffering. And that's my goal. So, you know, NSA was great. I was like, shit, I'm pretty badass here. I can do crazy cool stuff. Worked at a nonprofit that was fighting food insecurity, it was good. But at, ultimately, I felt like they were just using people's voices to fundraise. And mm-hmm. it's one thing to do that, but it's another thing to use the money to actually elevate people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I met these two great people, Winston and Meg, and, you know, I love them. They're like my two co-founders and we all had decided to leave for our separate reasons, but we kept talking. We were like texting, like, dude, did you read this article about snap? Like they're trying to do PEBT um, so that people can buy hot meals with their food stamps at restaurants. And like, we were like, oh my God, we got to do something about this. And like months had passed and Winston was like, guys, we should just start a company, Feed Forward. And Liz, we want you to be a partner. And I remember thinking like, this is it. Like these two people I trust with my whole heart because I know their intentions. And they're, Meg's amazing at marketing and PR and partnerships. Winston's like, he used to be an actuary and then he went to ICE and became a chef. And so he's an amazing at analytics, but also at like, medically tailored meals and upcycled food. And then with me, my policy background, education, workforce development, and then growing up food insecure, we're like, let's do something. And so essentially what we created is Feed Forward. We would say it's like a catalyst to a better food future. But one of our first programs that we built is called More Than a Meal, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is an opportunity to get a meal and more. 
But what's unique about it is that you can sign up to our platform. Um, you receive a text message because we did a bunch of surveying. And my misconception was that I thought people who were homeless probably didn't have cell phones. But what I found out is in New York, they all have cell phones. Everybody's right? got a cell phone. Yeah. And, and so I was like, oh, my God, this is revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And so what we did is we created a system where you can text your zip code. It will tell you restaurants or grocers near you. It will let you pick a meal of your choice. Uh, and, you know, we always have like a vegan option, a vegetarian option, a, like a fully meat option. And then as we get to know you better and, and your household size, we're able to give you more meals. Um, if you have like any medically tailored needs, we're able to hook you up with a restaurant that will create a medically tailored meal. But for me, the beauty is that it's like we use food to break bread. And then after weeks of or months, we're like, hey, do you need help applying for health insurance? Do you need help finding a job? And we're almost like this plug, like we're the plug for anybody who needs help. And like we team up with healthcare providers like Centene Corp, which is like the largest medical insurance in the world, actually. And then we also partner with local elected officials to show them that we can't just give food anymore. We have to collect data because the census is all fucked up. It's wrong. It's not correct. And these elected officials keep winning elections based on what the census says. And the census is wrong. Yeah. So if we really want to help end hunger, we need to integrate data like blockchain and analyzing who we're talking to and working with medical institutions so that it's not just a meal, but it's also following up on a checkup on high blood pressure and all of these other things. Because if you're talking about food insecurity, you're also talking about housing insecurity. That's right. You're talking about like kids who are going to school hungry. So how are you going to be a good student? And so like what we do, so more than a meal is our nonprofit arm. Okay. We decided after, you know, a couple months that it was evolving really quickly and we wanted it to be owned by you know, maybe nobody, but like the founders would be on the board and work through it. And um, on our for-profit side, which is Feed Forward, we do consultancy for food impact. So that's like, um, you know, food waste, food sustainability. We're currently uh, working with Invisible, which is a blockchain group that backs food, but also shampoo and other products. And so right now, my expertise is coming in to try to tap into independent grocers so they can get this high quality fish that's backed with blockchain so that the price stays transparent across the whole board. And then the win is that every time you buy this fish, a percentage goes back to feeding people who are hungry. So it's like a win for the independent grocer because they're getting access to proteins that they're just inaccessible unless you're like an Amazon of the world or ShopRite. And then at the same time, Every time you buy a fish at an independent grocer, you're helping to feed someone who's hungry. So hmm. for us, it's really like connecting all these loose ends in the food system to create a better one. Wow. Uh, that, that blockchain piece is tracking price and supply chain. Is that, is that just like a, that's what it is using distributed ledger for supply chain and making sure we're not getting wild markups. And then are you guys, I guess these network of grocers are trying to use like kind of communal buying power basically to get those bigger, better prices then. So we're helping them do the communal buying power. So yeah, yes, it's that. And then the other big point is invisible is the first uh, company in the United States to be FDA approved. So that also means that we can tell if like, I don't know if you ever saw those, 
articles that Subway was like had fake fish and like it was tuna, oh, but it was actually like a mixture of all this disgusting stuff. And so with the blockchain, you're actually able to verify whether or not this is illegally caught. Um, and the way that we use block, like Invisible uses blockchain with companies around the world, it's they're using blockchain to track that there's no like child labor. So blockchain has the power to really transform every system and check people, right? It's like we created a system of checks and balances that doesn't actually check and balance anyone and blockchain can definitely do that. So, so I'm, I was looking this up while you're talking, it's invisible, like E-N, right? So, yeah. cause I was like, what a bad name, invisible as in hidden, <laughs> but invisible means yeah. to be made visible, right? Yeah. yeah okay, yeah, so yeah. E-N visible. Yeah, I, was, I just wanted yeah. to clarify cause I was, I was looking it up uh, and I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad mm -hmm. you told me this name. I'm really curious about this now. Okay. So you've got, so you have two organizations that more and more than a meal is the nonprofit. And that is what is running this, um, food access kind of app text message thing where I can, yeah. so if I'm food insecure, so my understanding, let me just give it back to you, make sure I'm understanding. Cause I'm actually like really interested in how this works. So then I can go, Hey, here's my zip code. And you go, okay, cool. Based on your zip code, um, we have connections with, let's say X, Y, and Z restaurant in this area. And so here's what our available menu looks like based on you got this place, this place, whatever. Um, and then they can pick from a menu. Um, seems like they're somehow getting, that's getting paid with snap benefits then. So they have somehow logged into this account. So Is that right? Right now it's not being paid by snap benefits because PEBT will start in January of 2023. So oh, okay. Year. Okay. But we cover it because, uh, we were able to raise, you know, uh, like $1.2 million. And then we, all the income that we make on the feed forward side, a percentage goes back. So we have some great donors. And right now we're just kind of trying to deplete that budget to show the proof of concept. But we've already been talks with like government officials and they're like, we really like what you're doing. So maybe you can help us run this program once it's launched. Interesting. So, yeah. so, okay. So then, so you guys are just paying the bill kind of like, let's say I wanted to start Uber and I was like, they're all free. And like, you just, yeah, free rides. So you're like, it's paid because I'm onboarding users. People are learning to use it. We're learning a substantial amount. What's the problem with restaurants? What's the problem with users? Yeah. Uh, and then, and then knowing a year from now or something, we're going to, there's going to be a, a EBT solution. That's going to be a huge funding source and yeah. a revenue model that we can blow the doors off the size of this or something like that. Right yeah. uh, now, size of it is interesting. So I'm assuming you're paying the bill um zip code matters and you have to have these connections to restaurants i'm assuming this is in a small pilot area like i can't give this to someone here in tampa right not yet but soon i mean uh one of our partners u.s hunger is based in florida so you know maybe we can make it happen sooner than later but yeah we have a our current pilot is about five hundred thousand meals going and that's between lower east side manhattan Brooklyn and some areas in the Bronx, okay, uh, which is pretty big, but we're not yeah. in Staten Island. We're not in Queens yet. Um, and like even next week, we're going to be starting our first beta in a college. We're going to be working with NYU. Mm. So, uh, and the, the niche there is that, look, we know that. And the other thing is like, we don't really want all this money for us, really. Like what we 
we saw and envisioned more than a meal being was a tool for other nonprofits because nonprofits don't have enough money to fundraise for programs and then fundraise to like have analytical tools. Tell and so really it. what we are partnering with US Hunger is to, to they built a SaaS platform that has AI. And so our big intention here is we want to share the tech we've made with other mm. institutions, but we realized that we couldn't even be in the sauce if we weren't doing what they were doing because they were, they were kind of like, hey, we got it. We know what we're doing. But if they saw us doing the same thing and they're like, dude, how are you, like, how come you don't have a line? And be like, oh, we just use this tech and we created a reservation system for the pantry instead of having people line up five hours ahead of time. And they're like, well, can, where can I get it? And we're like, you can get it for free. And if you want analytics, then you have to pay for this tech and you have to go up. But yeah, like our our business is not really to be like, of course, I love food insecurity. It's where I want to help. But really, we want to be in business to help other nonprofits fighting food insecurity that yep. just don't have the time to invest into Web3, blockchain, all this stuff. But if they had the tools, mm -hmm. not only would they be able to do their programs more effectively, but they would also be able to fundraise so much easier. Because the Robin Hoods of the world, the guys who are giving people money, all they care about is analytics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let me back up and make sure, because there's, I heard another thing in there. So um, the food that people are ordering is from a restaurant. Yeah. Okay. So like, let's just, you know, fill in the blank, uh, this sub shop down the block and they got these things on the menu. We have an agreement with them. And so someone's coming in and picking up their food, just like they might with their Uber eats or something like that. Like, yeah, I just, I phoned in an order. It's ready. It's got my name on it. I just scoop it up because yeah. I, I transacted or you transacted through the app or something like that, mm -hmm. that I guess you told me they that's like synced in their POS. And so they're good to go. Something like that. Right. So then, but when you were just talking um, just now, I heard, like something about a line and a pantry and these other nonprofits working with food insecurity. So like yeah. I told you, I just, before we did this, came back from a distribution we do, which is a little more food pantry style, right? Like we, right. we have a refrigerated kind of mobile market. We go out into these food insecure communities. Uh, we distribute groceries. There is a line, people line up. Um, and then you're saying, and so what I heard there, which is interesting to me, both like we've, cause the, the, the thing I hate the most about, we always try to, and have always tried to step up the, the experience of what we're doing. Right. So when I started doing this, I'm like, look, people are hungry. I got this ugly big beat up pickup truck, cardboard boxes, throw this food in the back, drive out here, throw a plastic table up, just do what you got to do. But mm -hmm. that's not a very dignified experience right like coming out getting this food this milk should be colder than this but it's the best we could do and actually back to your like saint francis brothers like there's this quote from saint francis i really love at least he's credited with saying start by doing what's necessary then do what's possible yep. suddenly you're doing the impossible well that was necessary like this food's going wasted those people are hungry we're gonna take it over there just do what's necessary but then you get out there and you go man what's possible like we could probably get a tablecloth i could probably bring some like wicker baskets and like put the vegetables in them. I could probably compost the worst of this. So we're not actually making ugly food out here. I could probably build a refrigerated trailer. So the food can be, we can have a continuous chill chain until distribution. Um, and so we do all these things. And now it's a pretty nice experience that would look a lot like a farmer's market that anyone would go to pay to be at, but, and, or however you want to say that there 
is a line. People line up for these things, right? And it's something I've always wished, like, and we've chatted, like, man, I wonder if there's like a an appointment version of this or a way that you could like dial this in where it's like, you know, exactly when you come up, you might show up right beforehand. You know, it's not, you know, when we have other locations where there's a nice air conditioned waiting room, that's great. But when yeah. we're out at a park like we were at today, it's just in the sun, Florida sun, 11 o'clock in the morning. It's not ideal. So, so question, um, is that something you guys have built that people you have actually have pantries using some sort of platform for exactly that situation? Yeah, so we, there's this uh, community center called Hamilton Madison House in, in lower Manhattan, and it services a lot of the API community, so a lot of like Asian, Asian um, constituents, Asian Americans, mm -hmm. and we kind of started there, and the way that it works, because a lot of people think like, oh, you have the tech, let's just freaking use it, it doesn't work that way. We had mm -hmm. to come in first, get to know them, and say like, here's a paper voucher, Mm -hmm. use this paper voucher to go redeem your meal yep and then after a month they were like hey i love they would like legit come up to us and be like hey by the way i just wanted to let you know one of the restaurants you picked they were a little skimpy on the rice last week <laughs> this is this is for you to know because you're paying them mm -hmm. and then we would like build these relationships with them and we'd yep. be like do you use whatsapp and they're like no we don't use whatsapp we use wechat and i'm like mm -hmm. okay so, cause there's this conception that like seniors don't know how to use technology, right. but they're on WeChat, they're on WhatsApp, talking to their relatives. Grand if they babies, can do yep, that, yep. Yeah, they can get a voucher code. So the next thing was, Hey, like, would you be interested in being part of a small beta so that you don't have to get a paper voucher anymore? You just have to just like show up with your cell phone and give them the last four di digits of your phone number. Mm. And they were like, we can do that. And so we started with a small group of like five. And we made sure that these were like popular grandmas and grandpas. And then they started texting their friends. And then it turned from like 10 people to like everybody's on the system now. And so one of the things that we always tell people is like, yeah, just let us work with you because we have to understand your community. Like a right. good example is we do this um, thing Wellness Wednesdays every week, bed And we just hired a new senior director of tech who's like helping me automate everything I currently do so that I can have more time for life um and my husband who like he's always like please stop working but um uh, <laughs> and so uh he went to the line and he was like liz i am sure that everybody here would prefer if we just delivered them these groceries so i was like okay mm -hmm. sure i walked by every single person there was 150 people on the line and i still have the numbers here they said out of the 150 people only only four people said that they actually wanted things delivered. They said, no, I come here every week for the experience of being with other people. That's right. And so for me, it's like, we have all these preconceptions about how tech should work. But if you're a freaking CBL, like well-built, which everybody knows and loves, you have a user profile that like Feeding America would not have. So like the tech sure. we build can't be one and done. It has to be mm -hmm. specifically modified for the trust channel that you have built. And so, yeah, we have the tech. It can be used for uh, other CBOs, but it takes time. That's my big thing. No, I'm so glad you, you clarified that. And I actually would go, amen. And even you walking through that was as good as giving it to me because I'm like, oh yeah, that I can do that. That makes yeah. perfect sense. That's very simple. Yeah. Um, that isn't, Yeah. And actually, uh, I, I immediately have like 16, like little experiments I want to run. And even, and by the way, 
the four P I knew like same here, like uh, maybe a couple people would want something delivered. Those couple people are probably the best off of the community because they don't need that social interaction and they are comfortable with a stranger or, or even a friend coming to their home that is embarrassing or in disarray or has 16 other families living there with them. Um, there's a million reasons that that, or, or don't even have a spot, frankly, yeah. where would you deliver it? I'll meet you on the corner by the library, um, yeah. which is a lot of the folks that we work with as well. So that, that actually resonates uh, perfectly. Um, what, um, this is going to be a bit of a shift here. What is the, uh, earliest memory you have of what you would call work? Like you, like when did the word take on meaning in your life? When did you learn what work was? Or what I did you remember work specifically actually. So, um, before, my mom became like super stressed out about everything. I remember we would always have like pancakes every Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, and my mom would always spend time alone before we woke up. Cause you know, kids, we would wake up at like seven thirty, eight, and I would hear her wake up at five. And every morning I would hear her start getting like the batter together and this. And I kind of would always like go from my bed, crawl on my elbows just to like, and hide under the table, just to watch my mom singing and like being free, like the sense of freedom. And then I remember the day that that stopped. Um, it was like my little brother, my young, like youngest little brother was born. And my mom, I think it just was like, oh my God, if I buy this batter, I'm not gonna have money to buy formula. So I remember like crawling under the table and looking at my mom. And it was the first time ever I saw her smoking a cigarette. She like turned the stove on, she lighted a cigarette, she put two boxes of cereal on the table and she just looked out the window like depressed, like I'm fucked, you know? And I think that was the first day I remember, like I gotta work so that I can see my mom make pancakes and sing in the morning again. And so like for me, I think I was six years old, but everything for me was like, how can I hustle, you know? And like, even in the Sorcerer Scholarship that I wrote the essay, I wrote about that. I was like, you know, I, there was a flea market in my town and someone had thrown away like a t-shirt printer and I found it and I was like, dude, I'm going to make money off of t-shirts. Okay. I learned it's like before Photoshop existed, they had like Canon, this software mm -hmm. that, you, you know, and so I remember learning everything I could on Canon to like create cool t-shirt designs and then like telling my friends like, oh, you like Yu-Gi-Oh? I can make you a Yu-Gi-Oh song, like <laughs> shirt or like, oh, you like Ryan Cabrera? let me make you a Ryan Cabrera t-shirt for the concert that's coming next week. And I made money that way that would help my family. But like for me, work was always a thing, especially because we had like a family restaurant and even like the bodega, my mom, she just, my grandma worked, my grandma still works at the bodega to this day. And she's like 90, you know? Wow. And so my mom would make it a habit that on the weekends, because we didn't have money to like go spend money to do things, but we had gas and a car. So my mom would be like, you know what we're doing today? We're going to the bodega in the next town to visit grandma. And so like part of my weekends were like, I'm gonna, grandma, can I go behind the counter with you and like help serve food or like pack these grocery bags? So it almost felt like work was always a thing. And that's kind of one of the biggest reasons that I strived. Like I always tell people I wanna retire early because I wanna enjoy like not doing anything because I feel like I've always been working. All right. So 
um, this brings up some really interesting questions to me. Um, so the retirement piece, right? Like yeah, so yeah. You're contrasting working with retirement um, yeah. and, and doing and not doing. And then early and you began the story is like mom getting up early, making pancakes, singing and being free. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that stop. So there's like this tie between, and this is, this isn't, this is standard. This is normal. It's, yeah. it's something I also want to wrestle with a little bit in the, the show uh, at all of them together is like the equating of work with financial. Um, so we, we consider work and employment really uh, we equate them a lot and it makes perfect sense, especially in like economic hardship situations right like oh you can talk about vocation and calling and if you find the thing you love you'll never work a day in your life and that's all cute unless you're starving in which case i have to toil i have to do whatever it takes to make money to feed my and it's like get true but also it to me i go uh what about like the pancakes like making getting up making pancakes to me i go isn't that work isn't that a labor of love isn't that and so like i i guess like i want to like ask you about that pushback on work so like and even and even like when then if, if work is just making money um rather than like an expression of calling and freedom right like the the mm-hmm. that kind of vocational piece of work so so i'm, I'm hoping i can thread these all together because then it's like i want to stop working well i go isn't that attached to like i work because of the financial gain, meaning mom was free. Now we have to work. One day we'll be free again. And now we're contrasting work and freedom, which to me is alarming. Um, and then, and then, and then also then when your husband's like, would you just stop working? Why are you always working? And are those the same thing? Right. Yeah. And like pick that apart a little bit. Cause I, I actually yeah. think this is an important like centerpiece of this dialogue for over all these shows is like, what do we mean when we say work? Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say, so um, I didn't make this super clear when I was talking, but one of the biggest reasons I left the museum world, and I'm grateful for it, like, I don't think I would be the person I am Mm. if I just stayed in curatorial and in museums, because I couldn't afford to be in it anymore. Like, I remember doing all this work, like work as in research Mm -hmm. for a museum in New York that I will not say because they might sue me or whatever, but um, (laughs) It was so devastating because I remember when I signed my contract, they were like, we love you because you're coming from the Smithsonian. So you know exactly what you're doing. And we're not going to give you an educator role because you're too boss to do that. We're going to give you a role where you're going to like be this person's research assistant. And then that person quit and they were like, you're, you're shooing for the role. And then they were like, oh, sorry. They took it back. They were like, you can't have it because you don't have a master's, but we're going to hire someone who does have a master's and is just really bad at research and you can work for them and do research. And I thought, so you're gonna hire someone to take my work and take the credit. Mm-hmm. Fuck no, like no mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, I'm glad you pointed that out because for me, a lot of the work that I've had to do because I don't come from privilege and I don't have a network of like, hey, my dad knows like the CEO of JP Mortgage. And if you have that, there's nothing to be ashamed of. But like what I'm trying to do is do work so that other people who look like me and have backgrounds like me do less work and push. Like, cause I had to really push forward constantly. I had people telling me to not go to college because I wasn't gonna make it. 
that I should just do community college. So for me, when I think of work, I also think of pushing all these doors open that were never open. So when I think of a break, because you're right, like I cook for my husband and I love it. I love cooking for him because I know how happy it makes him. And like, he's like, oh, I love these flavors. But when I think about work, I mean like the work that's daunting, the work that's traumatic, you know, like that's like, oh, I had to sit in a boardroom today and tell a bunch of people who don't look like me and think that like I'm uneducated, prove to them that I am educated and that I do have the skills. And like, for me, when I think of retiring, I actually think of doing a different kind of work. Right. I think of doing like going to speak at colleges or working with universities to create workforce development programs that actually work for the community. Right. Uh, Like I heard this school was saying, like thinking of doing a workforce development program that linked to a burger company. And that's great. But unless you're telling me that those kids are going to get manager positions, it doesn't matter to me anymore. Cause it's like, we already hear on the news every day that people working at McDonald's are barely making it. Why would I want to put a person in that situation? I want to fight with McDonald's and tell them like, let's make a better program. So you win. And so does the community. So I think it's like really about a different kind of work right now. I'm doing the grunt work and I love it. Yep. Don't get me wrong. I just wish like, I dream of a world that my kids or your kids or like anyone's kids that maybe are disenfranchised or black and brown or whatever, don't have to constantly be having to prove themselves or justify why they want to do something. Amen. Amen. And, 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 and actually, you know, it's funny. So we're it at the heart of this. It's like the, it's the confusion. It's the challenge of the word itself. So like I could say, you could say to your husband, I love you. And then you could tell me, man, I also love pizza. Um, and I, you know, it's like, we use this word, but we don't mean the same thing. And certain words take on different meaning and connotation. And, and at the very origin story of this podcast for me, I actually was invited to, um, uh, well, I, I do like this little like summer school kind of, um, I don't know. It was like a, anyway, I did this class over a summer and it was on building a, a philosophy of work. And I was asking kind of fundamental questions about work and sacrifice and struggle and flow, like the, what is flow state and, you know, what, like trying to dig into these things and like unpack the ideas of work. And, and, and obviously there is like uh, toil and work, like there's these different ways that we can look at that, but like a fundamental conviction was something like we're built to work. We're built to produce things, build things, create, create might be the right word, like to, to provide value in the world and to our communities. And, and, and one of the convictions I've had with the people. So um, I always, this is a weird sentence I say, and I, I don't like saying it anymore. Cause I, I work with people who don't, I walk with a lot of people, let's say who do not have work in terms of employment. Uh, mm-hmm. We, we know them in the community. We know them at the food, the food, uh, distributions we know them um in our in our earn a bike program and all these places and and yet i believe and tell them like you need to work and they're like right no one's hiring and it's like well that has nothing to do with working like you can work on yourself you can work in on relationships you can work on that bike you can work on you can just offer your work as a gift to your community like do something valuable because you you are more, you need that as much as you need food. This is like a core conviction of mine. Um, but then, 
And, and so then I realized looking at that, how deadly, like genuinely, I think deadly, like as in not eating, not yeah. having work to do responsibility, meaningful work, picking up heavy things, doing something worth doing um, folks that live on the street and don't have employment. A lot of times I go, man, it's killing them because there's no responsibility, challenge value. And so then I go, Hey, why don't you let's work together to build this bike. Let's work together to grow some food, whatever. And let's put in some work. Let's, let's work on building a better city, whatever. And, and then you, you watch what it does when people have like sink their teeth into meaning and responsibility and like vocation, this is an employment, which, you know, that's another question. Like you still need revenue. We still need money. Like they still need houses. Like those are real, those are real struggles. Well, meanwhile, I'm looking at, I'm always looking off at the future going, huh, uh, y'all's jobs are doomed. Most of y'all like the driver's jobs, the, the cashier's jobs, the, and, and, and the burger flipper job, like all of these jobs are going away. Like substantial amount of jobs are going to be gone. And it's, yeah. lawyer, lawyer's job, shit, like computers can go through discovery way better than a human being. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, these jobs are doomed. And I go, and if our society equates work with employment and there's about to be like catastrophic decrease in employment and humans think this is what work means. I go, we're in for like existential crisis, yeah. which actually is like where I was like, I'm going to start talking to everybody about this. And, and in every conversation, inevitably, it's even why maybe I asked that question is like, can we bump into this uh, conflict? And let, yeah. like, can I hear people kind of respond and react to the I'm really glad that work? you asked the question because it made me realize like, so my two co-founders are older than me. Like I'm the youngest one. I started with them when I was like 27, 28. Mm -hmm. And um, they, this is their second life for them right like mm. they've had businesses they've started up they've done startups before and like each one of their stories was like I was an actuary and I did it because I needed to have a job and make money and then I quit that after I made enough money and became a, like went to culinary school which was really my passion and with Meg it was like I was doing PR and doing all this stuff and I like Sotheby Condé Nast big firms and then I got sick with an autoimmune disease and I mm. had to physically stop because I couldn't even walk around the corner without my husband holding me like by the hand and or on the shoulder. And so because of that, she had already like a good background and she was like, I can start another life doing what I love that is work still. And I think for me, it's sort of been the opposite. Like uh, uh, I, it's, I guess it's been in a similar vein, you guess you can say, because like all the stuff that I've done was started to love myself. Like in an ideal world, I always tell people, can't wait to go finish my PhD, but mm. I realized that it wasn't, it wouldn't have been profitable at the, this current time, mm. having a PhD in history, right? Like imagine going through COVID with the PhD in history. Like if you have one, kudos to you and like, good job for bucking up, but it's freaking hard out there. Mm. You know, when you're like teaching and making 60K a year, and then you have a family of five. Mm. So for me, automatically it was like, this isn't conducive to my growth. Cause I don't have rich parents. And so for me, what I see is that like, I'm doing something for the community right now. And because I know the community needs it and I need it, like, God forbid I lose a job and I'm on EBT snap or homeless. I want a system to exist where I know mm -hmm. that I'm not going to die. That's it. And so for me, this is a passion, but it's a necessary passion. But like, I see the work that I do in the future. Like, I'd love to be a history professor. Like, yeah, that's, 
that's my true dream, but I'd love to be a history professor that talks about food access mm-hmm. and the history of food. So yeah, like uh, I'm so, so glad that you brought that up because it also is crazy. It's detrimental because a lot of the times I think about my two other founders, I'm like, wow, they've done so much, but like, what have I done? And it's like, no, actually like I've done a lot. I just mm-hmm. keep trying to compare my journey to theirs and mine is a little different. And like, when mm-hmm. we think of work, like a lot of people think of work equals income. Like what mm-hmm. you do is your worth. That's not, it used, I used to be like that. All I could ever talk about was work. But for me, like my worth is every day I wake up and talk to my husband and I'm so glad that I exist and people love me. Right. That's what I wish people wish. Like, I think a lot of kids are like, oh, I can't wait to be a billionaire. And don't get me wrong. I wish I could be a billionaire too, but your worth is not money. It's the love that surrounds you. Oh, um, I mean, it's just so clear. And honestly, just go back to brother Greg, right? Yeah. Brother Greg, I'm assuming was Franciscan based on the yep. college he was at, which yep. means he took a vow of poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, did brother Greg put in work? Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. And so there's this breaking with, uh, so right. We equate and we ask our little kids. We, I mean, we do from the beginning, we say like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we talk about like a job as opposed to like, what kind of human being do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you want to produce? Right. There's, there's a million ways to frame that question that isn't wrapping identity up with job economy up with job. And, and I, I do think like, we've got to wrestle these things apart from one another. Um, and I do think it's, it's like, it's gonna, we're going to undermine ourselves really quick as this thing unravels. Um, and, and you're right. Like you, you go, I put work into my marriage. I put work into my like health. I put work into my, I invest in my community and in my community and my family and my relationships future. Well, that's, that's real work. And sometimes it pays right? Sometimes, sometimes it pays. Um, and if, and if that's the case, then, um, how would you define success? Honestly, I used to define success as having a lot of money because Mm -hmm. I grew up very poor, but, um, one thing I'll say is like when my mom passed away, I basically got adopted by this family in my church and they, they're not like billionaires, but they're, pretty well off and so I had this I was afforded this opportunity to one have a house under my head if I was struggling they were always like I got you don't worry and I realized with them that success is really looking at my childhood trauma and you know as much as I talk about how much I love my mom there's a lot of doubt there because she was so busy working all the time that she was never home to affirm that she loved me mm-hmm. which is why I have this like I this chip on my shoulder that's like every time I do anything my husband's like hey how did you feel about the distribution that you did last week and I'm like it was really good I just wish my mom was here to see it mm-hmm. and then he's like well why and I was like because I just want her to know like I want her to say I'm proud of you and so uh, my definition of success is actually being able to look at myself and say I'm loved right like I am so freaking loved I'm loved by you I'm loved by the sorcerers I'm loved by my adopted family I'm loved by my birth family I'm loved by my husband um Mm -hmm. and what I want most in the world is to show other people that they can be loved and like dude like when I walk one of the things I love the most is um we work with the Checo pasta sometime and um every week they actually cook 
pasta in their office and their office is in uh, the financial district. And that's actually a peak place in New York that there's a lot of homeless people mm. because it's not a place that runs on the weekend. It's always Monday through Friday. Mm. So it's mm-hmm. a pretty cool place for them to duck and cover. And going out there, there's like people who like, you know, peed themselves, whatever the situation is living uh, outside. But I love going and giving them meals because I come up to them and they're like, dude, thank you so much. Like, and they're like, you just help me feel seen today. Mm-hmm. And it's not because it, they make me feel better about myself. But in fact, they remind me of a time where like, dude, when I was in high school or middle school, I really wanted to kill myself mm-hmm. because I was like, what's the point? Like, I don't feel loved. And like, imagine someone like I, and I wasn't even homeless at the time, but I couldn't imagine what it's like to not have a home. And then not feel loved because you don't have food. Food is a simple way that people show love. So yeah, like I think my definition of success is just like, I'm loved. So that means I'm already successful. Like, yeah. You know what? I, I, um, I want to, I, it's so beautiful. And I actually think like, there's something really insightful here about like, you know, a lot of us, cause okay. You know what? I'm just going to start with this. It reminds me of, uh, so you talked about being Catholic, right? And Catholics are kind of into Jesus, right? And there's these, yeah. there's these books that were written about this person in history, Jesus. And yeah. um, they, there's these four books called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're different, but they tell about the same dude, the same history. And in all four of them, there's, there's only a couple stories that are in all four, right? And one of them is this like baptism scene where Jesus goes to this guy, John the Baptist, um, and goes and gets baptized. And in all four versions of that story, and all of those precede kind of the work of Jesus, they're the beginning of the story, right? Adult Jesus comes in, baptized, then begins ministry, right? And in all four of those stories, there is a kind of a voice from heaven, a dove descends or some like miraculous voice or light or bird. And there's a voice that says something like, you are my son whom I love and in you, I am pleased. Mm -hmm. And what you just said really reminded me of that because I've thought about that a lot. In fact, it's been a challenge to me forever because it's like, a lot of us work, like you said, like, like the guy on the street that you brought something, you made me feel seen. We want to feel seen. We want to feel loved. And a lot of our frenetic work, a lot of work that people do, a lot of work that people put in is quite unhealthy in that it is a, it is an effort to be seen and valued and loved to be enough for their community, to be seen by somebody, to be acknowledged. And we're frantically working. Even religious people are doing that. Like, Oh, well, God love me if I do enough. And yet like the actual work grows out of the identity. And for you to start with the success of to know that I'm loved by my husband, by my community, by my God, by my friends, uh, by my mom that, and then because I'm loved, I can go, love this neighbor. I can go share food with this person. I could put in endless hours of work out of the fountain of success that kind of overflows from this kind of core piece of just knowing that I'm loved. Um, yeah. I'm like, just, sorry, I don't want to go, 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 go. Yeah. Like, uh, one thing I want to correct myself. I know that I said that the person like soiled themselves, but like, I use that as an example because 
this is exactly why like I see so many tourists in New York they're like ill I don't want to be around that person they're dirty but like you don't think about why they're dirty so I just wanted to correct that because I, I know people are probably listening and they're like dude that was the wrong way of explaining it I just want to make sure but the second thing I wanted to jump in and say is that my favorite story is the prodigal son right like he had everything and then he left because he was like I want to live my best life and live on my own and you know his son the other son works and stays on the farm because he feels like that's the right thing he should do right mm-hmm. like I gotta stay and work to be here for dad but then the prodigal son spends all his inheritance and ends up working on another person's farm doing like manual labor and he runs home he's like you know what I gotta go home he comes home ashamed to his dad and his dad runs out and is like we gotta throw a feast for Mm -hmm. you and he's like what and then the son's like what the f dad I've been here the whole time Mm -hmm. and you're gonna throw him a party when I've been here the whole time Mm -hmm. and the response is something like yeah but you've always known that I love you and he left to go search for something else and you can leave too but Mm -hmm. like I just want you to know that no matter what you're always loved no matter what you do no matter what yeah like no matter what kind of work so like what was interesting is that the son who stayed to do the work did it because he felt guilted mm-hmm. into it right like so like it's really like how do we define work and what do we do as work it's supposed to be our journey so if That's you're it. doing something so good because someone else told you to like I constantly tell anybody I mentor or talk to like follow your wonder follow your wonder because that's going to lead you to the places that will make it feel like it's your journey and I think a lot of us are stuck living the journeys of our parents and that's something that I've even had to struggle with you know Um, and that's okay it's part of the process it is it is um something that um has come up what you you know you talk a lot about your mom she was clearly like a really important person in your life um the the I mean the 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 traumatic kind of nature of losing her so rapidly um that it's and then you've mentioned like all these other like pieces of trauma um but also like it seems like there's been a lot of um a lot has emerged from so i'll just say this for me like Mm -hmm. i was in this terrible car accident years ago right it's just one of many things i could point to but it's like a really obvious one like tons of pain it's the worst thing that ever happened to me super i wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy if you hit something and i'm in your car with you just hit it really hard i don't want to walk away from another car accident you know um Mm -hmm. but like i also think it's the best thing that ever happened to me and and i get that from you like referencing mom referencing trauma and pain and i i I guess i just wanted to ask you to kind of speak explicitly to kind of the the, what grows out of pain and suffering because you seem to have a wealth of wisdom born in grief yeah Yeah, i used to teach a class so i sat on this board food education fund everyone should check them out it's literally like a, a nonprofit that focuses on creating food access programs that not only give people food but give them culinary skills so you don't necessarily need to go to a culinary school to be a chef what's it called again it's called food education fund it's really cool okay i love them and so i used to teach this course there once a year it was like a love your history uh love your trauma and push Mm. forward and um i think a big part of it is like yeah like you know someone asked me once if you could go back in time and save your mom would you change anything? Mm. And I was like, no, because what I realized is I, as you heard, like I adore my mom. Mm -hmm. And if she was alive, 
I would have focused all my life on my mother. I would have been the prodigal son's other son. I would have been, I would have stayed. I would have, my mom didn't even want me to go to college. I had to fight her for that. She was like, just stay and do the family business, stay with me. Cause we were kind of each other's blankets, like security blankets. But like, it took me a long time to get to that point. And it's because I realized that in my mom passing away, as much as that was painful, it made me have to do a lot of reckoning. It made me have to think about what I wanted to share with her and how I wanted to live and like, why? Um, and at mm. the same time, it also made me realize that in letting go of her, because I felt her pain on such a different level, I wanted to live my life for her. But when she died, I started living my life for me. And it just so happened that the, the life I wanted to live was empowering other people. Um, but previous to that, it was just about my mom. And that's great because she's she needed the help. But like, how good is it to help one person when you could actually help a million people, right? And so, um, yeah, like I think a lot of it has had to do, of it has to do with being surrounded by community, being surrounded by people who love me. And I don't think it's a necessary, like I will always tell people my faith changed my life. Mm. Uh, but I will also also tell people, cause my husband, he's, he's like, I am Jewish. But like, I believe in something higher, but I don't know if I really believe in God. Sure. And I'm always like, dude, I, and I love him. My husband helped me love myself in so many ways. And I think that's for a different podcast. But <laughs> I really tell people it's not about God. It's about following something that's other than you. Because if you become the center of your life, then your life is all selfish. Mm -hmm. Like another, another requires us. Like you need another to do anything essentially to even understand the capacity of helping someone right um and so i think a lot about suffering i think suffering is something you need to embrace because when you embrace suffering you're able to really go to the core and understand really what the wound is and when you can understand the what the wound is it's like what i was talking about history earlier you can understand a system and where it's flawed and how you can enter the system and give your whole, like, breathe, breathe life into it so that it can be changed, if that makes sense. Oh, it really does. And actually, you, you transitioned to system, but you began with, like, it's almost like suffering to embrace suffering and enter into you. You switched to system. But if you stayed with suffering in the sense of like let's just say physical is the wound like what what i'm what i hear is like to enter into the wound and breathe life into and transform and and like that 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 just seems like such a profound idea but it resonates with i know for me how the wounds have become the like fountains um it's like actually what bleeds out of these is life yeah. um at some profound profound level and, um, and I, I haven't really thought about that. I don't think at, at a more systemic level, probably because of the, the, we come at things, it sounds like different approaches where you're, you're like kind of a systems thinker. And I've always been like, uh, on the outside of these a little bit, like, uh, we'll just build an alternative. Cause I'm, yeah. I'm a little frustrated with the it, ones we have or whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about building alternatives. It just never worked in my favor. I was always seen as like a really bad person. So like, for me, it was always like, okay, let me just learn the system. Let me learn how to talk how you want me to talk. And then let me politely tell you about yourself. And like, dude, 
part of me retiring early is being able to not give a shit. Like I know so many people that I admire that did exactly what I did and retired at age 35. They sit on boards and they literally tell people, go fuck yourself because your idea is wrong. Mm-hmm. And like, I can't wait to get to that level. <laughs> uh, because yeah. right now I'm just really nice. I'm like, okay, that's a really good idea. Yeah. Let's work on it this way. And it's not that I think they're stupid. It's just like, again, it's like, have you ever been on food stamps? Right. So why are you creating the system? No, I mean, I, it's funny because I have like a very similar, uh, I think temperamentally I'm way more prone to just say those kind of things, but it's also why I've like really, I mean, I'm not invited to sit at those tables. Right. And, and honestly in, and recently I actually have received a couple of invitations and I'm doing, and I've learned a lot of lessons, right. To like chew on the side of my tongue and wait for the right moment. Like, okay, cool. There are things to be said, but you don't need to be spouting off like that all the time where you're losing your voice by screaming all the time. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, hold it for the right moments. Right. Um, and, and trying to learn some diplomacy, not something that comes very easily to me, but I do, it is maddening, maddening to watch nonprofits blow money, um, Mm -hmm. to waste money on these systems, to, to, to just build, uh, 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 solutions where everyone's like investing in solutions that have all these unintended consequences that have never even like discussed these ideas with the neighbors that they're serving, which is why even you going, no, actually, if you want something for your line outside your place, we need to talk to your neighbors and see what app they're using. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly right. Because you can't actually come from the outside in uh, with anything. And, yeah. and there's just such a, it just, it just resonates so much in me. Um, and, and, and actually why I struggle with these systemic kind of solutions at all, because it's like, how, how can anything happen up here? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Go ahead. I go mean, ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, like, I really agree with that. And I think that like, I went to South by Southwest a couple weeks ago. So uh, when I was, was in college, was that super I, fun? Yeah, it was, funny. it was like, <laughs> I was just party. like, Oh my God, we're yeah. like, it almost felt like a pandemic free world, which is not true, obviously, but like, yeah, everyone just came still, home with COVID or whatever. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was, it was great. And um, I was just so moved by so many different things, but like, in particular, it was just the fact that like, we, one, I'll say that I was there and I thought for the last years, I've been like, Oh my God, Nobody gives a crap about what we're doing. Every time we talk about this, they're like, oh, whatever, it's been done. But mm. at South by, it was like all these innovators. They were like, no, it hasn't, like it, it has been done, but not in the right way. Like keep doing this. And so it was really empowering. But what struck, struck, stuck with me the most, I went to a loop talk. Uh, their CEO or one of their co-CEOs is John Henry. Um, and then um, Candice, uh, and they're really great people. And then there was this other speaker, his name is Craig Lewis. And he came in really strong. He was like, yo, my name is Craig. This is where I'm from. And I went up to him afterwards because I grew up in a household where I was told speak better because people will, uh, you need to pronounce things better because otherwise you'll be labeled as X right. or like don't use code, uh, code like slang because then like people will put you in this box and like a uh, code switching was a, like, I'm really good at code switching. Yeah. But one of the things I've been really trying to focus in the last year is to stop code switching. Like I am who I am. 
it's, like when I go into the community, I'm like, yo, Mrs. Miss Joyce, how are you? That's and they're like, hey, Liz. But then I'm in a business meeting, like talking to you, even part of this podcast, I caught myself. And I know when I'm in business mode, because I do this thing where I'm like, um, instead of, um, I say, hmm, <laughs> but what I was trying to think. And it's because that was like the cues that I was given by a mentor in college who happened to be a white person, which is fine. Like I'm not, they weren't racist. It was just what people told them mm-hmm. systemically is good. But like one of the things that I'm practicing and like I love about you, John, is that you're your authentic self all the time. And I strive to be my authentic self all the time. But I know that one thing is that like the real me is like, it would come up to our next sorcerer meeting and be like, yo, Gary, let's stop. Give me that. I want you to give me a V friend too for my next nonprofit so that we can auction it off. Let's stop playing games and let's get this done. And then I'd even say like, John and me and Sakari can like pool the money together because we're all doing something similar. And we know that your cloud is going to get us there. And then we're all boom. But like, that's how I am. And like, anytime I land a business deal, it's not because I'm like, hello, I'm Liz. I'm like, (laughs) actually, and I'm just honest on myself. So I think if anything, whoever's listening, we live in a world 2022 now where you can be your authentic fucking self and you don't need to code switch. And like, sometimes you do and you have to because there's old school people, whatever. But like, if anything, learn to be who you are because that is what, like, if I, you know, become a crazy investor one day and I have like millions of dollars, I'm always going to invest in the person that looks or comes from a community like me and I resonate with them. And like, yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. I'm, I'm in full agreement. And then for the sake of those listening and like nuancing this conversation a little bit, cause I, I would say like, I, I really resent, I guess like the code switching is the best way to say this. Like I've always been like, man, the fact that I have to like put this into your language um, investor or whatever, so that you'll take me seriously or whatever, you know um, and I'm, and I've always been very defiant of like, I'm not going to like be like, Oh, you need to shave to do this. You need to talk this way or sit this way or dress this way. And, and I've always really bucked against that and, st- and do, and have always really betted on authenticity. Like, and yet I, I do want to nuance it with saying, and we talk differently in different contexts. Like mm-hmm. if I'm in the alley with a bunch of dudes that have been drinking all day, or I'm at, or, you know, and, and even in different cultural settings yeah. um, or with grandma or, yeah. or right. Or at a boardroom meeting, I wouldn't go so far as to say code switching. But you might go, there is a minor version of something like contextualizing. Um, like, I, I, I mean, I think a lot about like cross-cultural context when I enter into a place and I go, I, I, I am talking to you, right? And I do want to communicate to you as me, but to you. And so there is something that, that takes place there. But I think it's like, you have to almost wreck the construct and go, fuck all that. I'm not doing it. Yeah. Be your full self and then and then learn how to dial yourself to go. I'm in the barber shop. I'm in the I'm in, you know, I'm in the whatever the the wine store, or I'm in like whatever the different context, or I'm at the I'm at the hip hop show. It's like I actually am acting different in these places and even sound different. And if you catch me, you'd be like, Oh, that's that is it is different, but it's something more like nuance and contextualization, right? Yeah. Than code switching. Yeah. I think, uh, but I go, that is to go, it is okay 
to do that and be not to be tone deaf and call it authenticity. Uh, but then to go, no, but also be authentic, not going like earlier on, you said, well, I was just doing what I was told to do, acting like I was told to act. And that's actually, uh, and, and I think the ultimate answer to this is actually just to be free, to be like, I am loved and I am free and I am free to engage with you the way I want. Whether I think the right move here is to tell you you're stupid or wrong or to say it this way, that way or the other, or to go in and say like, you know, this is what we need to do to come correct uh and 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 you use the example by the way of like the sorcerer and like yo gary in our next meeting um go ahead and i i know like i i want to get to this before we run out of time too so like uh i want to hear you know i i mentioned you're like a fellow sorcerer we've mentioned it a few times i don't assume that everyone listening even has any context for that or knows what that is um, and I would love you to kind of share with everybody, like what that is, how that came on your radar, how you got in, like, what is it? What are, and you know, this is something that this is actually how we came into contact. And like, I really want to like hear that story a little bit and yeah. share it with everybody listening. Yeah. So, um, very authentic. Uh, I didn't have a dad growing up. Um, and it was always something really hard for me because like, having if you don't have a mom or if you don't have a dad present it's really hard uh how you communicate with other people of that sex because mm -hmm. you don't really know like what it's like what it's what a normal behavior is to have a father is or like uh there's certain things that advice that these people give you and so um there's a couple people that i would always follow um first was gary v because mm -hmm. i just loved everything he said and it, it was always like so authentic to the yeah. to the core and I just felt like that's who I am. You know, like mm -hmm. I was the kid in college that told the teacher to stop fucking teaching us the same shit if there was no progress. Mm -hmm. And instead of getting like kicked out of school, I got a fellowship to do research with her because she believed in me. But <laughs> yeah, like, that, that crazy. <laughs> yeah. But like, yep. that's scary. You know, like he was always it's true. Like, it's what resonated with me self. as well. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then there's like other people, like I always followed John Henry because I'm like, dude, this is a guy who looks like me. He's the same age as me and is freaking killing it. But yeah, I always followed Gary. And then in the last five years, when I really started to become my own entrepreneur, actually, the only reason I have so many connections is because I hustled like Gary, like do you, from age 18 to like 22, I did so many free consultancies that people would be like, yeah, you need something done? Just ask Liz. So now, years later, I can call them and be like, hey, can I ask you a favor? And they're like, no questions asked. Let's go. Right. right. So for me, as I started delving more into entrepreneurship, um, I kept finding mentors. But then at the end of our mentorship, I would realize that they cared so much about profits and not mm. people mm. that I was like, I respect you and I love you, but like, you're not the kind of mentor I want for life. Yeah, And so seeing what Gary was doing with Web 3.0, um, because I was a kid during like Web 1.0, and I remember telling my parents, like, I made a Geosites. I don't know if you remember, like, the Geosites. I made one, and I coded it, and I was like, guys, like, we can make so much money. And my parents were like, we have a restaurant. We have a supermarket. It's making a ton of money. You know, years later, they're like, we should have listened to you and bought that stock. And so when he was talking about Web 3.0, it's like, I don't want to like miss this. And I have mm -hmm. enough money to kind of bet on it right now. So it started off with just like following the web 3.0 stuff. I entered that Google form to get like a free go, like go. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, like two weeks before my wedding, I got a free, like the Zestful Zebra, which is like, mm-hmm. and I just thought like, this is it. I'm so lucky. And then I saw the Sorcerer Opportunity, which is basically like a unique one of one token. And for those listening, Go is just Gary V originally owned. Um, and so that was a different NFT. I was very blessed with that. Then I saw the Sorcerer, which is another Go. Time, time out, time out, time out. One more piece of context for those listening. Yeah. So the the project this is part of is called V Friends, um, which is an NFT project. So these characters that she's mentioning are kind of part of this, the IP or these characters that make up this thing. And then a chunk of those were Gary originally owned were ones that he held on to and didn't release in sale that he could give away and things like she's talking about. And then the Sorcerer is another one that, go on that it gives you a utility, which is like, I think it's like 30 or 40 hours of one-on-one access with Gary Vee and basically opportunity to elect into an internship. And basically the way that I would explain it in the easiest way is imagine never ever having a network and then getting this token and it's any opportunity that you basically could dream of, they can open up. And it's almost like one-on-one mentorship for our personal growth and exactly what I was looking for, which is, a mentor or mentors who believed in people over Mm -hmm. profits and that's exactly what we're learning you know every person every speaker the team like may and daniel and ryan and andy like gary's cool but i want to know more about them too you know (laughs) and so yeah it's been a great opportunity um it's why i met you john and all the Mm -hmm. other sorcerers and like i can't wait for us to really change the world together i know we're all kind of figuring out our stuff with our personal projects but I feel like in my gut that in like five, maybe 10 years, maybe sooner, we're going to do another launch of a project that's going to be like all of us coming together again, because like, we're just so awesome. I see you guys as family at this point. Yeah, me too. So buckle yeah. up, people. Yeah, be ready. <laughs> it's going to be crazy. Yeah. Um, so we've, you know, for those listening, like we've gone, uh, we're still at the beginning of this journey, really. They, they, they had initially sent us a bunch of dates for meetings with Gary and uh, this like network of access, access and other mentorship from his network. Um, and then he really just came in and like said, you know, we're going to spread this out, pump the brakes so we can be more intentional to kind of line up the right meetings and things. And I'm super grateful for that because it's given Liz and I, Sakari, you know, the rest of the sorcerers, um, uh, time to hang out with each other, to get on calls together, to, to do this together and kind of really build, uh, some kinship with one another. And then, uh, we're all going to be hanging out, uh, actually very soon in less than a month. Now we'll be all, uh, up at VCon together and, yeah. uh, and just super excited about, about getting together there. Um, Anything else that uh, is going on with you that you want to, you want to kind of dig into here? Yeah. I mean, let's see. Um, So let's move forward. I mean, like one of the things that I'm really interested in is um, food system. So like it's all food. I mean, I really care about it. My biggest dream is uh, to help because like, look, during the pandemic, we saw that restaurants have a really hard time accessing groceries. Um, And then some of the restaurants, if they're higher dining, have access to like farms, but why can't we create these networks internally? And so really what I'm trying to do is create a system where everybody talks to each other. So the restaurant owner talks to the grocer, instead of buying at Jetro, they buy from the grocer, which then helps the grocer. 
increase their buying power, mm -hmm. which then helps them get access to higher quality goods at a better price for guess what? The whole community. And so it makes things more accessible. And like, yeah, I mean, I feel like for me, that's really something I'm thinking about. Um, and then the other thing, obviously, like I really, really, really want to do like an NFT project. But since everybody's doing one, I've sort it's of hard, slowed right? it down. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I know it's there. I have made the connections. I just like, I don't want to just jump into it. And that's one thing that I really admire about like uh, Zane. He did Chippy's mm -hmm. World and like mm -hmm. he built a community, right? Like he started with Art Barn, you yep. know, which is like another community. So by the way, people listening, Zane used to work for Gary Vee. He's pretty famous. He's the guy who asked Gary Vee at one of his talks if I he could have you. a job. Yep. And then he got the job and um, he kind of branched off after um, a couple years and started working at a startup. He didn't really like it, said it was a great place. It just wasn't for him. And so he decided to create his own Discord and sort of community. And he started with what was Art Barn, which is kind of like a communal creative community where people would draw together, sketch doodles. And now it's turned into Trippy's World, which to be fair, I haven't done a lot of research on, but like what I do know, because I'm still in the Discord, is that he has so much support and community and like he sold out. And like my goal in the future is to create a community like that. Because like going back to what we've been talking about, I just want people to know that they're loved. And like, I think that we can do that, like whether it's going to church, whether it's being in a nine to five job and you yeah. love it, like some people love working for the man and that's good. Like they're like, <laughs> I love getting a pat on the back. And mm -hmm. like my husband told me, he was like, he told me yesterday cause we were doing our taxes and he was like, babe, I love you, but just wanna let you know, I'm never gonna be anything but a W2. Like I'm not gonna be 1099, <laughs> yep, yep. nothing like that. And I was like, and he was like, and that makes me really happy. So don't same, same think that life. I'm sad, you know, like I'm not mm -hmm. sad. And so it's like, if that's what brings you happiness, go for it. But like, mm -hmm. ultimately for me, I think the power of discord is that there's so many kids like me that were depressed in high school. And even like you, you know, like we were outsiders that like web three is a world where we're not going to be picked on for our curiosity, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, I really want to create a community to maybe like talk about trauma because like that's a lot of people come to talk to me about trauma. Like you'll, I did a different podcast last, last year. It was, um, it was like uh, about how people who have lost their parents use that trauma to do good in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's just so many people who live with daily trauma and there's just not enough resources to get a therapist, but a discord could be a really good start. Yep. You know what I mean? So. Well, and community support. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the, so this is like, I don't know, a side example, one of the projects, one of the things we've been trying to work on here is, um, and it does overlap with depression and anxiety, but it actually starts with um, having ill family members. So if, if someone's family becomes ill, you know, or, or let's say, you know, like my dad, this happened, like he got very sick, um, can't he cancer that was like fast, but slow, like long enough that there's like a lot of caretaking people have chronically sick. We've known folks in the community with children that are like born in tr with tremendous uh, physical need. And there's like this weird way. There's an experience of the family member and often women um, that have to take care of uh, it's disproportionately women, non-professional, just like family member, mother of sister of neighbor of um, someone with a tremendous physical need. 
and now they have like an instant double life. Like they've got like this thing that no one knows that they're dealing with this weight that they're carrying that they feel guilty for even thinking of as weight when it's Mm -hmm. like, but it's like, I can't leave. You know, we've known families that were like, had to the point of teenagers that they were raising, they couldn't go on a date together because they couldn't, the the amount of stuff that their child needed couldn't be communicated to someone to like babysit. It was too difficult, too much. Um, And, and, and so we've been really uh, struggling and wrestling with this question of caregivers because then they're dealing with guilt for feeling this way about the person they're caring with and feeling like it's a burden. And like, I've strapped to this and this, and yet, and it, comes with anxiety. Are they okay? Am I going to fail at this depression? Now I'm not taking care of myself. I can't go to the gym. I don't eat right. And like it compounds and then it pulls them out of the economic game completely. So like in these economically uh, disadvantaged communities that we work in a sick family member is, is catastrophic usually to a household or three, like if the neighbors are pitching in on it. Um, and so what we've just been trying to do is, uh, one, we, we, we were trying to build some tools. Actually, one of our board members is in tech and we're trying to build some like just basic, 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 uh, like organizational tools that are just like an alert about medication or tracking this or whatever, just information. So when we do see the doctor, it's compiled or, or when, or when you do want to go, Hey, can you watch my kid for an hour? It'll just alert you when it's time to do this, that, or the other, or if he goes to the bathroom, you can give me the info I need. Cause there's a menu here to answer these questions, like trying to make something that can buy someone a few minutes of reprieve or something like that. Um, these basically tools, but one of the, just two weeks ago, we were talking to someone who had just recently come into this situation because of a wife that fell really, really ill. And this guy wasn't actually, it's funny. Cause he said, he said, I'm actually a doctor. I'm highly educated. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty financially well off. Like he's like all of those things that you're talking about, like our additional struggles that even if you could solve for, if you could go, I solved the finances, I solved the housing, I solved the food security. You solved all of that. This is still catastrophic to my life. Like it's, I don't know how to live in this new reality now to care for my wife in this way, which I'm going to, I got to figure out. And, and he just said like, and, and we're just like, oh my God. So this is like, where you're talking about the discord is what made me think of this. He, he just said, you know, if there was just someone who would just get on video and do a quick, he's like, I should maybe do this. We're actually going to follow up with him and maybe try to do a video with him. Just like, you know, there's that really famous book about having babies, like what to expect when you're expecting, yeah, but yeah, like yeah. what to expect, like all of a sudden your husband was in a horrible car accident and is now like, has a, is paralyzed or needs all these, or, or someone gets tragically ill or a kid is born with these conditions. Like, uh, there is a very shared experience of the caregivers. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from the medical systems and then, and then God forbid they, they interact with the medical systems or something to be expected there too, with all the yeah. ways that they're treated and laws and language barriers and all this stuff. But just to go, can we build community about people that share that experience? Go, Hey, I, I'm there too. mutual aid and support, but also just to go, let me just tell you the story. We make a little video series. It's like, all right, here's some things that you're just going to, ex- you should just expect, right? Yeah. You're going to, you're going to feel like you're living a double life. No one's going to understand. You feel like you can't leave. You're going to feel guilty for, it's just like, if I'm told that up front where I could just get the download and, and help people. And like, I don't know, I feel like there's an overlap with the thing that you're saying. Cause you're right. Like 
we I don't know if that's how monetizable these things are, but it's uh existentially necessary. Uh, yeah, and like you you saying that actually reminded me that when my mom passed away, so my roommate and best friend at the time, her mom passed away a year later. Mm-hmm. So her mom was dealing with cancer that started off in her breast and then spread everywhere. And so like she, I remember her and I talking and her just being like, dude, I love being around you because you get it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, hey, this is what it's going to be like. And I realized that like, we try to create all these apps and stuff. And like, I'm down for apps. I like apps. They're yeah, cool, it's great. But, yep. but I also think of like the second question you said, or the second thing you said is like, oh, I don't know if there's a way to monetize it. Like, it's like we keep thinking about money because right. we're told that it's needed to be successful. But like what medical offices should be saying is like, what do our customers need mm-hmm. to be better? But they're actually saying, what can we do to get more of the market share? That's but it. what people don't realize is that getting the market share is being human. Mm-hmm. Like you can't buy like everything you just said. Like I thought about it, I'm like, dude, if my if this existed when my mom was dying, I would have just gone on it and been like, okay, so like she has a brain aneurysm. Cause there was like, I remember like sleeping by her on the bed, just hoping that she would just move her finger a little bit or just looking at her eyes and stuff. Yeah. But like, if I had like a book that was like, Hey, this is what it's going to feel like. Yep. I had a community, thank God, but not everyone is fortunate enough to have that. And so like, I, I guess I, I want to leave it at the fact that like, yeah, technology is going to change the world, but let's not forget about the humanity, right? Like there's like, yeah, technology is going to replace a lot of jobs, but I also don't think, and like, I've seen robots that are like being created on AI to like express emotions, but like, okay, our emotions are still way more powerful than any robot. And we need to never forget that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny. I talked to a guy um, that, uh uh, Adam Mangana, if you go back, he 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 started actually the first uh, BR school, I think in the nation, but it's here in Florida. It's a charter school um, that they've started that's completely done in BR um, from home or from wherever. It's a really kind of cool innovation. Um, it's a classical school, classical education, uh, third to eighth grade, whatever. But I, it's interesting. We were talking about technology and what's coming. And he's like, you know, the, I love these conversations and imagine, and it just, re, you reminded me of this just now, because he's like, you know what I think is a better question is what's going to stay the same. Mm-hmm. Like humanity is going to be humanity. Like are there's some basic things about us that are never going to change. So like, yeah, the job market's going to change our our need to eat isn't our need to connect as human beings isn't our need. Like there's these things that are gonna, and, and just to go like, and actually, by the way, the, the network that we're building, um, we're the app that we're trying to do for this thing. We actually called it humanize, um, for exactly that. The, 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 the idea is like, just going that I don't even know if we want to build something to scale because human networks are small. Like (laughs) we just need this for the family click, you know, and then that's it. And then like, if it works for your family, great. We, we did it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, uh, I, I really just think it's, it's just such an important thing to come back to in the end is like, yeah. it's the thing that you can count on. And, and then, like you said, like to know you human are loved. And then what we put our work into is like, uh, is for what is, what is most human in us. Um, you just made me laugh though, because, um, everyone, so I, I'm not a hater. I love, food banks and what they're supposed to do but 
let's be honest, like I think the biggest reason that they don't work effectively is because they refuse to create a system that works for everybody. And that's exactly what you're saying, right? So like with your humanized app, it's like, I'm not trying to create a use case for 10 million people. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to create a use case that works for this community. And I think that we could solve hunger if all the big organizations in the world, I'm sure you know how they work. They all have like territories and it's like, don't touch this territory. (laughs) But what's crazy is that there's so much actual food waste happening in these systems because they refuse to create internal systems that speak with the independent grocer, with Mm -hmm. the CBO like you, the nonprofit. And like, if we really focus, like I told my business partners the other day, if I quit Feed Forward and focused the next 10 years of my life to creating a system internally, like more than a meal for every institution, the IP there is that at the end, I would help create a a dialogue between all these systems so that they would actually work. But the thing is that all these food banks, if they have a system, it's antiquated. If they create a system, it only works for them. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. Like you and I, we talk about food insecurity and we're always thinking about like, dude, how could I give you what I have so it works for you too? Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not necessarily sure that other food banks or food pantries do that. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because it's they've been built to think that this money is the only money that exists. And so we're going to fight for the same dollar. Well, you know, I, I just to kind of piggyback on that. And I um, the the I, I think it has a lot to do with what an institution actually is. So like innovation and institution are kind of antithesis in a lot of ways, like institution bureaucratic is actually by design slow. Right. Um, and that's actually because that's what makes it stable. Like things don't turn on a dime and just change their mind like an entrepreneur can or a, a small business can. Um, and that is that, that's like, you you know, that actually would create instability if the government did that, if the if the you know, it's something like a feeding America. Right. It is this big mm-hmm. behemoth of a of an institution. And it's like this thing by design can't adapt or innovate. And that actually is what the problem is, but, but it's like, also it's a feature, not a bug, right? It's like by design, this thing can't do that. And so you need these other things, these smaller. So I really, and this is what I love, by the way, one of the things I really love about um, the rise of web three is the, the ability to organize decentralized networks, because I actually think like, no, like this is the idea of team of teams. This is Al Qaeda cell networks. This is a church movement in China. It's like no little pockets of people doing the work, but now with the technological ability to coordinate at large um, with kind of like a DNA code that can iterate in every neighborhood as opposed to the, and, and I actually go, oh, it's game over for these slow institutions on a long enough timeline because because they're not human in fact there's what's so interesting about them is like they they just exist to perpetuate their own existence and so then they make decisions to survive which is like at some level i actually think like the the unwillingness to die is what makes you monstrous like you back me into a corner and i don't want to die i might become an absolute monster to do whatever it takes 
to sustain my own survival, just like I would if I'm extremely poor and need to feed my family, just like I would if I'm an institution facing existential threat in a marketplace. And it's like, that's, that's actually the quickest way to go. I don't know, for a lack of a better word to become demonic is to go, I'll do whatever it takes to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually think like, whoa, man, that's a scary thing. And to be done with like, they're not going to convert very easily. And actually, this is maybe back to the whole thing why I'm not like a policy guy where I'm like, oh, this is rearranging chairs on a Titanic is the way it feels to me. Right. Where I'm a little more like I'm going to be over here, here building an arc because the flood is coming <laughs> whatever, you know. Um, yeah. Well, cool. I know this is about when we said we would uh, shut down. I do want to uh, ask you to kind of like tell everyone where they can get in touch with you, contact you, follow you. Um, and then anything else you kind of want to share before we sure. jump off? Cause I don't want to keep you all day. Well, I could sit and talk with you forever. Cause you're so yeah. awesome. You've got a great <laughs> voice. So yeah, and the other thing is like, I totally like anyone who's listening now can literally Google how much money any food bank made on their um, this last year. Mm. And I was on a call with the state of New York and they said that most food banks, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to be that person, but they saw a 70, 75% increase oh, in how sure. much profits they were making. And that meant that their C-suite got paid more and all this stuff. And it's just like, if you're making that much money, why aren't you thinking about how to cultivate the community that you're in? But again, it's like you said, the it's like, oh man, in order to keep making money, we have to keep the, this being a problem. So oh, God forbid like, we solve anything. Yeah. So build a better system. Yeah. I digress, you know, but that's just my two cents. But so if you're looking to follow me, all my social is the same. It's uh, at L P E R R R. It's Elper. Or if you want to follow us at Feed Forward, uh, so it's Feed Forward at uh, instagram and we have a twitter but it's not really active but just definitely follow our instagram um i'm on twitter i'm on instagram i'm on snapchat i'm on tiktok but i'm still exploring the tiktok world <laughs> um and then one day i'll be working with john that's my next goal man I'm, I'm i'm in recruitment mode if you can't tell i'm well, i have plans we're gonna do something big um, I, I, I love this. I do as many rounds of this as your game for, but, uh, thank you so much for spending some time and, um, yeah. I look forward to, it. I know you and I got a lot of time together here coming up. So, but thanks for your yeah. time today. Thanks for recording this.